This episode is brought to you by NordVPN. Listen up, nerds. No. Good evening, Mr. and Mrs. America, from border to border and coast to coast and all the ships at sea. What? Hello, friends. Do you have a computer? Of course you do, because it's not 1987. Hell, you're listening to this on some kind of computer right now. But do you have a VPN? Oh, (laughs) what's a VPN, you ask? Well, my friend, a VPN is a virtual private network and it offers two key benefits. Enhanced privacy and security online. But VPNs do a lot more than that. VPNs shield your IP address, change your browsing location, and make online life easier. It's all about safety and security, my friends. But, like everything else in life, it's also about watching TV. Don't let your paid subscriptions go to waste. I use NordVPN to access my home content while I'm traveling. Wink, wink. Plus, secure your connection on public Wi-Fi in airports, hotels, cafes, anywhere you go when you're traveling. There's over 6,300 servers in 111 countries, and you can find a nearby server for the best VPN speeds. NordVPN is easy to use. Connect with one click or enable auto-connect for zero-click protection. And it's got amazing speed. NordVPN is one of the fastest VPNs out there. And with just one NordVPN account, you can use it on six devices. It supports every major platform, Windows, Android, iOS, Mac OS, Linux, even Android TV. I think those are all real. Don't miss out on all the awesome benefits for using a VPN. Go to nordvpn.com ifanboy today for a risk-free 30-day money-back guarantee. The link's in the show notes. Once again, that's nordvpn.com ifanboy. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Um, you ever feel like you really need to get something off your chest? This is this this is a, like a real thing. Like, if you're mad, if you're upset, if uh, if there's something going on, like the I, there's there's often for me an idea. Maybe it's a wrong. Maybe it's a moment. It's it's an injustice. It's something that because you, you keep going on and on over and over in your mind about it, and like that can create anger and resentment or shame, whatever it is. And very often. I have found, I am not a therapist, I have found that when you let it out, when you give it voice, when you say it out loud, um, sometimes it makes you feel better because you've, you've expressed it. And sometimes it makes you realize like, oh, this is not a big deal that I've, it's been stuck in my head. So you give voice to those things um, and it can make you feel a lot better. And shock of all shocks, therapy is one of those things that can help you do that. It can help you be able to say those things in a place where you don't need to worry about the repercussions of it, work your way through it, uh, figure out coping skills, how to get around it, you know, find, find ways to deal with that stuff instead of letting it fester. Um, if you are thinking of starting therapy, uh, if anything I said sounds familiar, you're like, oh, maybe my life would be a little better if I could deal with that kind of thing. You should give BetterHelp a try. It's fully online. It is convenient, flexible. It is suited to your schedule. That's the idea. That's what they're going for. Um, you can fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. That's a big deal. You can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. That that personal connection, I believe, to be super important. Again, I'm not a professional. Uh, get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash iFanboy today. You get 10% off your first month. That is BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash iFanboy. You are listening to iFanboy's Talksplode with Jeff Parker.
Josh Flanagan of iFanboy.com, and this is a Talksplode episode. I am here today with comic book creator Jeff Parker. Yes, thank you. Thank you for letting me get on here. Thank this you. I've, I've I've been I've been wanting to have this conversation for a while, uh, and I was just waiting for the right time. And I thought, you know what? Right now is the right time. I think I need this. Maybe you need this. I don't know. Yeah, I do. I, I definitely do. Well, this is uh, well, this is what people in 2018 do. Yeah. I mean, we we can't. I can't just tell my family like I, I just want to talk <laughs> to my friend for a little bit. It's so true. <laughs> we have to make a podcast out of it so that ostensibly we're we're uh, working. Yeah, it's there's yeah. value. We're we're contributing. We're not we're not just having experience. We're creating content. It was because people are stuck in traffic. <laughs> they, <laughs> they they've got to hear something. It's true. You, and it's it's never ending. And, and there's there's no end to the to the the need to fill that hole of content. It's to, it's so true. Yeah. That's so scary. The number of people who I only get a chance to talk to because I find an excuse to make podcasts with them. Yeah, and it's, a, it's like it's not a now small number. To, yeah, it's like me trying to line up comic shows. Like, oh, I, I could go uh, hang out with so and so, my old friend. And then I'm clearly not going to do this unless I, you know, rope somebody into sending me out to the yeah. city. <laughs> oh, now that I now that I don't have anybody to pay for the shows with me, it becomes a whole different thing. Right. So let's um let's get this out of the way just before okay. anything else. When was the last time you watched Jaws? It was uh, at the beginning of summer. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I, was, I figured, and I actually thought about you at the time. I thought, I wonder if he's going to watch it this month or if he's going to wait till later in the summer for his uh, yearly watching of Jaws. I, see, the thing is, I was thinking about it, and I think it's been a while. I don't do. I don't necessarily go with a regular yearly thing. I want to say it was maybe two years ago that I saw it in a theater. It was an event, and and I and initially I was super annoyed because I was like, oh, they just put the DVD on. It wasn't the. It was a real you know movie theater. Oh really? But it wasn't even a Blu-ray. It was the DVD. I recognized the menu screen. Oh God. And then and then I was so I was annoyed for about ten seconds, and then it all went away. It didn't matter. It was it was yeah. big and it was on screen and that was fun. I think that's the last time that I watched it in full. And I have really been having a, uh, like a, you need to get on that. Like, like making it in my mind, some kind of priority that, that I'm not getting to like yard work. Well, do you, do you feel to me like I do that you got to watch it in the summertime? Cause I don't know why I, I think I've got to cut, I guess, cause that's when I first saw it. I don't know. Sure. I and feel it's the like, quintessential 4th of July movie. I feel like it's a, you know what? I feel like it's around me a lot in the summer. Like if right. I, like I went to Cape Cod a couple of weeks ago. I felt like I was it was around me and, you know, it's it's referenced <laughs> yeah. and, and, you know, now I think I follow Jaws based accounts on social media. So there's like the <laughs> Daily Jaws and then there's there's a couple of Instagram accounts like that. And so it's sort of a constant presence. Do there? I wonder if do your listeners get why this is a touchstone for us or anything? I, I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure I do, so I, I don't. Know I, I don't. Way. I don't either. I don't know the origin, but I knew that it wasn't gonna be like I would ask you that, and you would go, "Why are you asking me about that?" I knew. Yeah, it's like, of course we're gonna cover this. Yeah, and we just had to right away, and I, I think that that sets a tone for people listening. Um, and my audience is pretty used to it at this point. I think <laughs> they better be. Yeah, I would. I would hope so. Yeah, so we're gonna talk about uh, Mayor Larry. Uh, you know, we're gonna talk about. Uh, well. There's that, that meme. The weird little guy with the dog that follows Quinn around. I call, gonna, yeah. I call him Netley. 
after no. after from hell's uh the the little guy who who follows uh the the ripper around or his oh, yeah. no it's his coachman for some reason around that time in the late 90s early 2000s i started calling that guy from jaws netley also that's the interesting thing you look at the the fact that you know uh brody's going to go on the boat with him uh, of course in in hooper uh that guy would have been the one going on the boat with him if it weren't for those two is that one of those cut scenes, or is that something from the book where he was like, I'm not doing this, this is crazy? I'm just sure that he's his first mate whenever, yeah. you know, there's no one else going on. But he totally got downgraded by the fact that he had two guys he had to take on. Yeah, but he's like one of those townies. Like, he wasn't doing anything. And he's not like, <laughs> right. he's like, you're not going with us. And he's like, all right. And he doesn't, he doesn't care. He's just going to go and sit there. And It's like, he answers to Quint, because Quint's got a yeah. truck with Quint's name on it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean that's 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 Quint's status in the town. It's pretty pretty strong. You, you know what I do for a living? I kill the shit out of sharks. Who's like, paying all him the for time. that? Who's his patron? Well, it's it's obviously like I remember uh, going down to the Florida Keys with my dad when I was a kid, and uh, when you got down there, they were always every place was selling little. They were small, but they were. Uh, shark jaws you know like a solid set or at least teeth or a necklace of teeth it was always just just little here's dead sharks that got probably ended up in a net so we boil them and uh use these parts and tourists like it and everything so i figure that's his deal everybody Mm -hmm. comes out to amity like oh man i gotta buy a shark jaw that's like 50 bucks or something but he's in that shack of his which it's July. We know it's July. That's a really nice boathouse, actually. It's pretty big. Okay, you know it's not air-conditioned. He's in a thick wool sweater, and he's <laughs> actively boiling hot liquid. Yeah, it's hot. Oh, man, he's that, dropping everything in there. That just doesn't make sense. That's a problem with that film because— No, it's it's clearly hot as hell. Well, I don't know. Brody's wearing a—he's wearing, like, a windbreaker, you know, a light jacket at the beginning. So Quint's just so tough? I guess. It's just he's an like Irishman, he's though. I figured he would just be a big sweater. He's committed to the look. Yeah. And I, love, and I love the fact that, you know, his accent just kind of still retains some of his Robert Shawness throughout. <laughs> but but apparently what he was doing, he was he was doing a kind of imitation of uh, what's his name? The guy you see in the movie for a minute. Uh, I can't think of that sea captain, but uh, he was a local skipper there. He's, he's the one you always quote him. He's the one who's like, "Yeah, wait till they catch when they." Oh, he'll be some sorry their fathers met their mothers when they hit them rocks. Boy. Yeah, that that whole thing or whatever. That's that's the one apparently he's imitating, but it kind of turns into <laughs> something else or whatever. But he's it's not. Yeah, no, that's what's perfect about it. It's like when, uh, it's like when somebody's like, "Oh, I was trying to make my song sound like this, and it doesn't sound anything like that, and it's something new." Exactly, yeah. and, and no one knows in your head that what you were tr- going for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, I think we got that out of our system for now, but I can't promise yeah. people that we, we can circle around. around with our three barrels. Not with three barrels, we can't circle we around. Can't. We can't. Back to three tons of us. So, take take me back to to where did, where do you get started in comics? Where where did you come from? Where's I know you come from North Carolina. But how do you go from, are you a kid who was just in love with comics, or, or, or was it more circuitous than that? Uh, it was uh, perfect, because um, 
I was a little nerdy reader kid, but my dad owned a grocery store. It was like a little curb market. And, uh, you know, you'd go there before there were supermarkets everywhere, at least in that area. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you always went to whatever your little regional store to get your produce and stuff like that. And, 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 and uh, where in North Carolina? Was it was it like a rural it was, area? It was, in Bur- it was in Burlington, which is near Chapel Hill. Okay. And it's, uh, it's just like – and then later it became known as the outlet capital of the South because – uh, Burlington Industries and everything, they started just selling stuff off to the side, and then a lot of places opened up. And then uh, everybody making the trip down uh, I-95 to Florida in the summer would stop in our town and buy cheap clothes. So it became a thing, like New Yorkers were always coming through and uh, you know, on the, on the way to and on the way back from Florida mm-hmm. and um, going to see their relatives. And uh, and they'd stop and go, wow, this is really cheap, and buy clothes. But anyway, before all that kicked in, my dad owned a grocery store. It was his dad's before him. And there was your classic Hey Kids comic spinner rack Mm -hmm. in the store. And uh, as I recall, and I'm pretty sure that this, it mostly had DC comics. And I think that's just because whatever distributor my dad got magazines from uh, just – got DC and didn't fool with Marvel and Marvel's typically went to like a seven 11. So only when we would go on a trip or something and stop at a seven 11, would I ever get Marvel comics and could catch up on those. And I was super excited because, wow, it's totally different. Even though I was really into the DC stuff. And I was, so I would read Archie and, uh, all the Harvey comics and, you know, and all the superhero stuff that I could get, but often not in any sequence that I could follow a story. Sure. I, that's that's pretty common. I feel like, for for a certain era of stuff, where where kids just were like, "I'll get whatever comic I can," and you read a bit of it and you move on, which really yeah, makes it interesting to me how sort of locked into you know a sequence and continuity everybody's got. Where I was like, the best part was just picking up a random thing and being like, "I don't know why this is happening," and just yeah, you just you just roll with it, yeah. and uh, maybe that's why I became a writer because I would like I needed all that closure I wasn't getting mm-hmm. when I was a little kid. Like I've got to end these stories. <laughs> they're they never finish <laughs> your great mission to close all the loops from the but the thing was i did and everybody and you would assume i have had a large comics collection but i didn't because i, I was well aware my dad needed to sell the books so yeah. i would just read them and take them back and put them back on the shelf nice and this is this is about when it's the 70s 70s it's, uh, so just right right all through the 70s that's a, that's a, I think I feel like that's a really good time for that because the books are sort of, you know, that you can read them as a kid, but there's still like an edgy thing going on there that that's a little that hints to something more that sort of keeps you going. I feel like yeah, and th- and then when I got to the point where like I could like either go out on my bicycle or started driving and could go somewhere, you know, I was still into comics and I would go to the newsstand where I could get more comics because you know, so my dad didn't have the store at that point. Uh, he briefly did open an outlet just like everybody else because he was like and didn't want to leave money laying on the table. Mm-hmm. And uh, but then I started like going to the downtown newsstand and, you know, getting my little monthly fix down there. But one of the big turning points, and I say this in a bunch of online interviews, so I'm sorry for people who uh, get sick of hearing it. I had entered a, um, a Swamp Thing movie contest. Uh, I saw it in the back of like one of the other books I was reading. They were talking about there's going to be a Swamp Thing movie. And if you enter in postcards 
And and then I realized, oh, postcards are only like 10 or 20 cents or whatever they were in the early 80s. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I got like 20 and I filled them all out and sent it in. And I didn't get in the movie, as you'll note, because uh, you didn't see me in there anywhere uh, running around saying, you know, uh, stay out of my swamp or whatever it was. Wait, no, I, I can't remember what his catchphrase was now. It's so embarrassing. I don't even remember. But, uh, Wait, he had a catchphrase? No, it was something like uh, something like no evil in my swamp. Oh, man, this this killed Mike Sterling would it's somewhere just just hit, <laughs> smashing his hand into it the wall or something over me not being able to keep your evil out of my swamp is something like that. All right. He, that he says to somebody, I'm, I'm going to protect the swamp here. And, uh, but anyway, I want a subscription, uh, to the new swamp thing comic. And, uh, that was really cool. Cause I'd always, I had heard of subscriptions, but I'd never had one and they would just arrive in a little, uh, little Brown paper wrapper. And usually they were kind of beat up. Like they'd get like someone drove over them or something. Yeah. Yeah, eh, I guess I didn't pay for it, whatever. And then because it was probably in DC and Marvel at the time, probably didn't keep a big track on that. I got another year for free. It was supposed to be just a year subscription. And it kept coming the next year. And so we kind of ate through all these uh, Martin Pascoe written issues. And then that Alan Moore one the anat with the anatomy lesson dropped on me. And at that point, I was like a lot of high school kids who would like comics. I was like trying to figure out girls and cars and stuff. And I was totally not paying attention to comics anymore. But, you know, a free comic shows up in my mailbox. Of course, I'm going to read it. And I remember like one day I'm, I'm just going there like, oh, cool, this thing. And I flopped down on the bed because nothing else was going on. The Internet didn't exist yet. You know, there, there, there's nothing to do other than read. Mm -hmm. Um and I'm reading it, and I get to the end of that anatomy lesson one, where which is the crux of the whole everything you thought you knew is wrong right. uh, story that everybody tries to make happen now and they can't quite do. And uh, I, I just like I was kind of stunned. And then I flip back to the beginning, like who wrote that? Like before, I didn't even care who wrote it. I guess you know. And I went, who? What? What? Yeah, I was just kind of like, and I, Alan Moore. And then I read the whole thing again. And then suddenly I was like kind of back in like, hey, what, what something's going on here? Um, so as, you know, as passe as it may be to go on about how good Alan Moore is, it really made a big impression on teenage me at the time. And uh, and then when I got to college, I was lucky that uh, I was majoring in art at first. That didn't work um, just like it didn't in my real life. Everything reflected later. Um, but like I, I had a roommate who made a reference to, of all things, bouncing boy one day. And it was kind of like, was he trying to feel me out to see if I was in, in the, in the club, you know, to see if I was a comics guy or something. But then I was able to actually talk to him about it. And then we sat, we got a, out a phone book because again, the internet doesn't exist, Josh. Um, you no podcast. Uh, just if just not, radio. if not for that, I'd be all in I mean, that one bit <laughs> like time period. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I was there, but I was a little younger. So I, I you know, yeah, and you I know couldn't you're like 10 years younger than me. And, uh, so anyway, he and I got out the, you know, I remember we're in our dorms and we got out the, uh, the yellow pages and looked up like, Hey, there's a comic shop. Let's go see what's going on now. Cause neither of us were really buying comics at that point. 
And we drove down, and uh, the local shop there was the Nostalgia Newsstand, and it was a great store that shared space with a, a regular, like, little thriller, romance, novel uh, store. And um, and Charles Lawrence, the guy who ran it, was incredible. Like, he pointed me to good stuff all the time, and I was totally back in then. And uh, and I started doing, like, uh, comic strips for the, uh, the school newspaper. Um, because uh, a friend of mine across the hall was an editor there and uh, he knew I could draw and he needed some comic strips and he asked me to try out. So I, I did this thing called the undercover cats, which these two little cats with trench coats would go around and crack jokes and solve crimes. Um, it's pretty painful to look at now, but uh, it was a lot of practice and, and mostly it was practice at making a deadline because, you know, every week I had to have this thing done and I had to get it in and get it shot and pasted down and all that stuff. So I started working at the newspaper and I would write and all that. So it went along because I became an English major by that point. And um, that's kind of what led me down the path. I started doing more comics and I met more people who were wannabes like myself. And, you know, I started going to the comic shows. And Where'd you go to school? At East Carolina University. Okay. The Pirates. And did you have to, I mean, did you have to sort of go far afield to find a comics, you know, like to get to cons or to sort of just drive around to the closest one you could find or just like a, a yeah, fan I would, community? I would love to, I wish I could just say like, yeah, I was so far out that I had to, uh, to do all these crazy tricks, but really again, with the freakish luck, like it was mm-hmm. like the universe trying to set things up near me to make sure I would do this, uh, John Hitchcock, <clears throat> who uh, worked at Acme Comics in Greensboro, North Carolina, which was back closer to where I was from instead of East Carolina, started putting on this convention, and he would bring in all the people he was into, mm-hmm. which was the EC Comics artists. So he wow. had like Al Williamson and uh, God, all these heavy hitters, got Angela Torres and all these guys coming down, and uh, like. He had one show where he had Will Eisner and Marie Severin and Jeez. Dave Stevens came out, and that's where I met Mark Schultz and all the. It was incredible. And did Wait, you... I'm sorry, I didn't meet Mark there. I met him going to visit Al Williamson after meeting Al there. Um, Brian Ballin came out. That was the first time I ever saw him at a show. And it was all this stuff at, at this at Greensboro, North Carolina, which is now it's now it's a little more happening, but back then it really wasn't. And, uh, Did you know who those people were? I mean, oh, at that yeah. point, you totally, were you were I like totally a student. I knew who they were because right. I was, I was so into comics. I was like, oh my god! It's like, and I guess in my mind, I guess I thought that uh, these legends just showed up at every show or something or whatever. I, did, I didn't realize it was so specifically tailored to be a great show, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. And 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 he would have good turnouts and everything. Uh, the the collecting crowd was getting really big. That's like in the late eighties, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, that's when you could put out a black and white comic and make a ton of money. Um, And uh, so, yeah, and I'd go there and I'd show my art and meet everybody. And like one of the real key moments that uh, was huge for me was I took uh, some of my latest pages and I just wanted to show Al Williamson and maybe get some pointers. And uh, Al just seemed happy that instead of I wasn't flopping down like here's some more superhero shit that looks like everything else some some 20 year old throws him and 
you know, it was me trying to do adventure type stuff. But like somewhere in there, I had drawn this little alien kid character. He drew an EC space uh, fantasy story. And uh, and he kind of pointed at it and laughed. And then he said, hey, just come. It's like, oh, I got to sign all these books. Just come sit back here. So he let me come back behind the table. And I was like, oh, man, I was just shaking. I just could not believe I was going to go sit on the other side of the table next to Al Williamson. And he had so many fans coming up to him that it really he never had time to actually go over anything with me. But it didn't matter because just watching him do his thing and talk to people and and just be a great guy and everything while I sat there and looked through piles of his artwork was just more than enough. You know, that was when I think I finally like quit sitting on the fence of thinking oh, I might do some comics or blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I have got to work in this industry. I've got to do storytelling. You know, it's like I was like a lot of people. You just you don't know how serious you are about something until something kind of pushes you over the edge. And that was it for me. And so like oh, the first stuff I did was all art. I could not convince anybody to read my stories. Uh, but, you know, you can show them art and they can see how well you can draw uh, pretty fast and decide whether you can do an assignment. So were you, were you uh, like, had you always, I mean, primarily been interested in being an artist or was that like an, a vehicle to get to uh, being able to tell your stories? It was my really complicated thing, like, oh, man, maybe if I learn to draw, I can get to the writing part. But, uh, but, uh, I don't actually, think that's a bad... Is, it's not a bad idea. It's, it's and hard. It's not, it doesn't, and it doesn't take as long as you might think mm-hmm. uh, when you consider how long any of these type of careers take anyway. Yeah. Uh, but what I always assumed at the time was, well, I'll just write and draw my own stories, like Carl Barks or somebody. You know, I thought I was going to be a one of those kind of cartoonists. And um, so through the 90s, when it was really actually getting hard to get work, you know, the industry was just falling apart everywhere because it was built on a collector's bubble. Uh, I, I know I don't have to explain that to your audience. They all know that. Um, it was a tough time. It was a tough time. And that's when I uh, finally, like towards the end of the 90s, I was like, man, I'm just not getting any work. And staying here is not working. And so I, I sent off, I knew somebody who worked at a uh, Sony animation and I asked if I could do a tryout for, uh, uh, animation. And they sent me, uh, just a little, a script and all this stuff. To, so I would sit there and go over it with their model sheets and I would just do these storyboards and all this. And it was just to do finishes. It's just to like take rough storyboards and put them on model. Um, so that then in betweeners can look at it and go over it. And I got the job and, uh, cause the one thing comics does, it prepares you for drawing literally anything. So you should be able to like transition to other media, uh, as long as you can tell a story pretty well. So I was like, Oh, well, this is it. I'm moving. And I, in 99, I moved out to Los Angeles and I worked at Sony animation for a little bit on the big guy and rusty, the boy robot cartoon. Um, and that was a great education and get back to another one of your favorite subjects. Darwin cook was literally feet away from me oh, geez. in in an office. He had, he had come on, uh, just at the beginning of the year, I think, or it may have been just like yeah, a little bit, almost a year before. And, uh, he had come from Warner, you know, he had been working on Batman beyond and stuff. And, um, 
he was working on Men in Black, and I was working on Big Guy and everything. So a lot of times I wouldn't see him. He'd be locked in there just working on stuff. Cameron Stewart would come in and out because he was his assistant and working on boards with him, like because Darwin was a, was a director. And I was like a lowly cleanup guy at the beginning, but I quickly like got pushed up to, uh, to just doing storyboards because I stuck around and drew when a lot of people would go out for three hour lunches and stuff. So, um, (laughs) here's how you get ahead in animation, I guess. But, uh, the great thing was, you know, Darwin come out and he'd let me bug him about how they worked on things over at Warner and he'd tell me all kinds of stuff. And, you know, he knew I was into it and he was always very sweet to me. Um, and then everything kind of wrapped up there. Like they, they wrapped up, I think both shows, uh, it didn't look like a uh, big guy was going to get carried on any network because Saban entertainment was, uh, tying up Fox kids or something, a bunch of convoluted stuff. And then they finally like started showing the, uh, the shows and they did really good numbers, even though they wouldn't give it a regular schedule anywhere where they put it, people would seek it out. Cause it was a good cartoon. It was really well written. Mm-hmm. It was funny. And, um, and then they tried to get us all back. And by that point, everybody had spread to the four winds getting other jobs. And it's like, well, you can't drag everybody back in. They all had to go work on whatever. It, it was, it was a really interesting place. You know, I learned a little about animation and, like you'd go downstairs and they'd working on a totally different cartoon like Dragon Tales or something like that. But then like in downstairs, uh, <laughs> at one time I was down there and then I discovered like a lot of the these Filipino artists who are these real badasses who worked for Warren magazine in the 70s and 80s uh, were down there. And they were working on the cartoon. And I didn't know it, <laughs> you know. And, and they had like one guy who would do, be their go-between because he was the one who could really speak English and no one else ever really, really did it. Yeah, it was crazy. And of course they were all amazing. Yeah. You know, and any one of them could have been running their own show if, you know, if they knew the language or uh, I, the... I, I kind of wondered if that guy wasn't kind of being insidious, like, no, no, you don't want to figure this stuff <laughs> out. I'll, I'll, I'll talk to them for you. Was the I animation largely being done... Like in house, or were you doing a lot of the pre production and well, then was, like the finishing? Yeah, it was all it was all storyboards because uh, 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 the the boards would then go to a Korean studio, and uh, and then would come back to us, and then we'd all go into the screening room when it was back and with the audio added, and it, even then it still wasn't a complete cartoon. They were still right. adding color and everything, but we'd go in there. And we'd watch our episode and we'd be just laughing and slapping our knee and everything, really enjoying ourselves to walk out. And this was this was a constant. Like we would always enjoy ours. And then I would always walk by like on another day when the men in black uh, crew were all in there watching their stony face. No one's laughing. No one's saying anything. And it's, it's just I just felt like that show didn't work really. <laughs> you know, Dar- speaking of Darwin, I remember he uh, put up a he had circulated these things. He had kind of redesigned the characters to make them easier to animate. That sounds and the, like... and, the, and yeah. And, and they were so good. I, I swiped a copy for myself and I think I've still got, got it somewhere. Uh, I was like, Oh man, this looks great. The cartoon really, really, but they wouldn't listen to him. Uh, they wouldn't follow it. They would stick to the, I'm trying to remember the Spanish artist who did do the designs for it. 
famous guy, but his stuff didn't work for animation, especially not TV animation. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's like, God, if you guys would just listen to Darwin, this would uh, all work so much better. You would be able to get the jokes, ever the timing would work, everything would work better. Uh, he tried. He gave it a shot. Uh, this, I, and then, I, but that, at that point, then that's when he moved on, and I didn't realize he must have been working on New Frontier then, because it wasn't that yeah. long after. It wasn't that long after that New Frontier started coming out, and I was like, "This is what I like." I was loving that comic. Yeah, I, th I mean, you were there basically the same time I was, because you wouldn't if you moved there in '99. I moved there at the end of '99, and I was there until. 2007, uh huh, six, six or seven. I don't remember. Um, oh, I didn't realize you were there that long. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I worked in I worked in shitty TV. I couldn't figure out how to get over on the kind of TV like you were working on because I wasn't. <laughs> what, were you, what were you doing? Uh, reality, like actually, reality wasn't really a thing yet. But I worked on first show I worked on was Loveline. Basically, I went there okay. with no connections of any kind. Oh and man, so, well I was. I was definitely listening to Loveline all the time, though. Yeah, that was that was like one of my things that like, because you know I felt like ugh, I'm so far away from home. I felt painful, but I mm -hmm. every night, man, I, that was that became my routine. Yep, I worked on I worked on the TV show, and I was a PA. Uh, you know, that's because uh, uh. that was the first job I could get, and so you know from there I went to the next. That show stopped, and then I moved to the next thing that they were doing, and so well, it was like a shitty game show. Um, I had to deliver Adam and Drew like packets of information at the radio station at night that they would do when they shot the next day. Yeah, Westwood Studios. Yeah, yeah, yep, yep, yep. Um, yeah. And so I, you know, it's just like one series of bad, forgettable shows after another until I finally like I couldn't cross over to the kinds of things I wanted to work on. I couldn't figure out how to make that work. Uh -huh. and, then, and then I was like, okay, I've had enough of TV production because I worked in crappy production for such a long time. Where, where yes. like you, you, you give your entire life, you know, oh yeah, hours and hours and hours a day on a on a day rate, and and at the at the, and you have to treat it like it's the most important thing on earth, especially to the people who are in charge. And it's oh god, bad. And I was like, all right, that's half of my twenties, and this is terrible. Uh. Oh yeah, that was uh, I know I remember that really well because after working in, uh, and I only did that for like a year. Mm -hmm. But then I started working on, I, I was just doing uh, storyboards for whatever, usually commercials, but sometimes like music videos and things like that. Mm -hmm. And um, I was with an agency that would rep me and they'd take like a, a quarter of what I made, but it did so well. I, you know, I was like, all right, whatever. I could work on my comics whenever I wasn't busy. And, uh, but I would often be like over around sets all the time and, watching people and they yes they did they expected pas to just utterly kiss their ass yeah and uh it was it was kind of painful it's like god no one can be just just talk about things like it's work no yeah no yeah, that's exactly it and what happened was i start i was i was good like i was a good employee and i started to move up in the production side of shitty tv shows and i was like i don't want this at all yeah so i mm -hmm. i took like a couple of Attempts at getting, uh, you know, in a writer's assistance gigs or to try to move over to, to comedy or drama or something like that. I uh, just couldn't quite get in. And I, and I remember at one point I, I entered some some um, spec contest or something and, and I made it to the quarter finalist. And I went to this big, like, event that they gave to everybody, you know, who, who kind of didn't suck. 
and and they gave us this <laughs> they gave what is now the most demoralizing speech I've ever heard it was just like you know if you want to work in sitcoms it's more likely that you'll make the NFL and I was just like oh fuck this and I like I kind of was like I, I don't I just don't really want it that bad and it was kind of what happened and so then I found a bunch of other things and and I don't even know how to describe my career at this point but that was where I started that's that's a heck of a start I did a lot of yeah. things I met a lot of low grade famous people. Yeah, yeah. Well, you definitely do that out there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, you can't get away from them. I mean, I'm there, everywhere I lived, I was always near somebody who was sort of famous or on the way down from uh-huh. being pretty famous and everything. You know, like uh, I remember, like when I lived at, uh, I was over in the Miracle Mile area, and I lived right behind Canner's Deli. Okay. And. Um, uh, so the kids in the hall, uh, Kevin, um, McCall, McC- no, um, Kevin wait. McDonald. Yeah. Kevin McDonald. He lived like, uh, just down the block and he was always walking this big dog. Mm-hmm. He had this enormous dog in some, uh, very classic, uh, LA, you are assigned a blonde girlfriend, uh, <laughs> sort of person in there. And I remember he'd walk the dog and that dog would always just lunge at my crotch and just about not knock me over. And every time he'd laugh, go, ah, sorry. You know, like, <laughs> In his high pitched like, Kevin McDonald voice. Yeah, exactly like that. I always think, come on, Kevin McDonald, can't you get this dog under control? Like, you know, it's like, don't let it pull. But he, he couldn't cause it was a gigantic dog and there was nothing he could do if he didn't want to. Here, I will, uh, I will, I will. Sh- I, here's my, it's, I guess this is my name drop story. I've never shared this, but I think that there's a connection here that works. Oh, good. So I was I was uh, working on this show that was like an early um, like documentary reality show. It's basically the same as um, Behind the Music. It was the exact same people, same format. It's called Fame for 15. It literally does not exist in any format anywhere. Um, was this an entertainment show? It was uh, like that. It was before that. It was on, it was on TNN, which oh, okay. then they were trying to – it was the Nashville network, and then they tried to switch it. Without changing the letters, they switched it to the National Network. Because it was going to be an overall pop culture sort of station, and then kind of like the way KFC just like kinda, yeah. we're not Kentucky, we're just KFC. And then they switched is. it to I think that's what became Spike. Oh, eventually. interesting. Okay. So uh, one of the things that I would do is um, I was an associate producer, and we would do um, motion control scans of photos because we didn't mm-hmm. we couldn't do it on a computer at that point apparently, and we take them to the spot. Um, in the valley where they had this big you know computer controlled uh camera that would scan over the board and if you you know remember behind the music like the 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 camera would sweep over the the picture and spin and do sorts of stuff and um there was <laughs> there was a couple of guys who worked over there they used to go I used to go there all the time because it was just more fun to hang out there so I'd you know get as many photos as we have and then I'd go shoot them all because the editor could use them to fill in gaps in the story when they're you know cutting it um but one of the guys there, there was these two guys both in North Carolina. There's your connection. Um, hey. Uh, one of them, um, still working in L.A., and he, uh, he's like a he directs Jeff Dunham's specials. Oh, awesome! I still know him. And the other guy was sort of the lower guy. Was just sort of there hanging out, filling in while he was um trying to get work. Was Danny McBride. And I, I used to just like to go hang out with him because I liked yeah, because he's Danny McBride. He wasn't Danny McBride. He was just Danny. He was my uh-huh. age, and he was funny, and we liked the same things, and we got along really well. And at a certain point, Danny had had enough. He's like, I, I, I don't want to be here anymore. And so he went back to, home to North Carolina, 
um, one summer, and I was like, oh, that's it. Danny's done. And he made um, a movie with his friend Jody. Uh, he made a movie called George Washington. Um, and, and he showed it, and, like, I saw that, and I, and I was like, I don't get your movie. I guess you were good in it, but I don't understand. And, like, that was it, and he kind of just quit. Um, then when they were away, they made whatever the foot fist way or something. I didn't know about any of that. But then uh-huh. one day, sort of right before I was moving out of L.S., I saw him on a billboard. <laughs> and I was like, what happened? He's bounding down? Like he came, no, this is before that. It was some movie. I don't remember what the movie was at this point. He was in Tropic Thunder, so it might have been that. Oh, yeah, he was in Tropic Thunder. It was basically Will Ferrell saw his short and was like put him in a thing and connected him with people and they put him in Tropic Thunder. And he was like, there was like a, a story in, I remember I remember seeing a story in like Billboard you know, and, and it was Danny. I was like, is that Danny? I know. I don't know. And I remember I emailed him when he came back and I was like, we should get together for lunch. And he was like, yeah. And I never did because people don't ever do that when they say that. Um, no, and they then, never do. You know, then a year passed. I see him on a billboard. And then before I know, he's a massive star. And I was like, wow, that is weird. And I was like, I would never. I was like genuinely friends with him and I will never be able to get in touch with him again. I and, know, that's, and, and if I did get, he, in touch he with deserves him, it, too, because he's actually funny. Yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, no, absolutely. He was he was funny. He he wasn't. I never knew him as like that character, because he wasn't like that. He was just a dude, you know. Who was it was? He would get along with everyone you know, basically. That's that's sure. who he was like. So that's my that's my North Carolina Hollywood guy I knew got famous story. It's a new one. Yeah, what what part of NC is he from? I don't remember. He strikes me as being from uh, yeah, near Charlotte, but I don't know if I'm just guessing at that or. Like, I guess I could use this computer I'm talking on to look it up. But uh, that's cool. It, yeah. it makes sense that you guys would be friends. Yeah, I, 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 was, I was always one of those things. It would be cool to run into him one day. But then there is always in the background the, do I really want that or just want to be like, I can show everyone I know this guy? Because yeah. then there's that because it there's puts, so much cachet to it. It puts you in a weird position. It. it does by him being, I'm completely wrong. He's not from North Carolina. He's from Georgia. I'm an asshole. <laughs> no, no, no. But he he went to school of the arts. And oh yeah, no, yeah. He went to he went to North Carolina school of the arts. Yeah, that's what it was. I think he did go back he, to North Carolina. Uh, there's literally no difference between those parts of the South. <laughs> it's like yeah, he might as well have been. Yeah. And and when he does the accent and everything, it's like it's very convincing to me. I'm like, oh yeah, that's that's what they sound like. That's the kind of shit they say. You have you have hung on to your accent pretty good. How long have you been on the West Coast? I think it went away and then it came back. I feel like that might be the case because just now when I got on with you, I thought that's stronger than I remember it. Yeah, it just fades. It's it's a it's kind of useless now. Because um, <laughs> when I when I grew up, uh, people were forever asking me where I was from, and I'm like, uh, I'm from here. Uh, you know, like, mm-hmm. but I just watch a lot of TV or whatever, so I, I I think that's the way I'm supposed to talk or or whatever. And then I I I guess I. You know how some people like they get it more in old age, like uh, Dan Rather suddenly really sounds like he's yeah. from Texas and he didn't sound like that for years on CBS. Absolutely. And I, I think that's it. I think it's just some genetic thing where it's been kicking back in as I've gotten older. Like whatever um, mental blocks you were using to keep yourself just a straight non-regional accent have just decided to let go. Yeah. And that's probably what it is. I was probably thinking like, no, I am not like you whatever people I was trying to not be like. I'm kind of excited uh, now that might happen to me. And now it's not so important. So it's, uh, it gets back in there and, and I still don't really say y'all, uh, you know, it's, I, I never said that. It's kind of weird, even though it's a very useful word. It is. It's quite useful. I, I use it in a, 
what sounds like an ironic way, but isn't, but is at the same time. <laughs> well, everybody does now. Yeah, yeah everybody says it. Like I, I adopted it at some point, and I was just like, oh, "This is just easier than other words." Um, yeah, Curtis Blow spread it to the world, and then everybody said "y'all" after a certain point. <laughs> He's given us so much. Thank you. Yeah, we we haven't thanked Curtis Blow enough. I don't think I don't think so. Um, <laughs> I'm not exactly sure, but when you say Curtis Blow, I picture an ornate belt, and I'm not <laughs> sure why. <laughs> I feel like if I look up that video. He's going to have a bell. Or maybe it was one of Ed Piscor's drawings of him. He had one, but that's what I think. I'm yeah. going to get back on track now. It's going to be difficult. But let's steer it this way. Okay. So you've seen the meme going around where they say Mayor Vaughn wasn't a good mayor, but I say he was. Nope, that's not what I meant. Um, I went back to well, Jaws. It's, the, it's the thing about uh, politics. Like yeah. after, after half your town gets eaten by a shark, they still reelected Mayor Vaughn. He was looking out for their interests. Yeah, something like that. It's like, well, he's got the anchor suit. Who's going to run against him, really? It's not, and he's got a family. He's obviously, it's it's a long, it's an Islander thing. It's a small, close-knit community. I just, it's not a good comparison to the current It's not a good climate. comparison. You know, they, they thought, well, he was trying his best to keep the, 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 the tourists coming back. It's, it's. So no one really helped, no one except, uh. Uh, what's his name's mom who slapped Mayor uh, Sheriff Brody? Yeah, Miss Kettner. She's the only one who really holds it against him. And and the only other guy was was the weirdo hippie from the Oceanographic Institute and this this New Yorker who they exactly. don't like. He's uptight. They don't they don't like him. Even uh, even if they knew logically that the Va- that Vaughn was wrong, that just I know I know these people. I know how they're gonna go. Yeah, it just it just makes they're sense. Like, they they might get a little sore because they miss Pippet, but you know that's about it. <laughs> it was a good dog. So it was a good. You, you're doing storyboards. Just never wear yellow when you go out into the. Don't do it. Don't get on a yellow raft. Don't do any of that stuff. It's bad time for comics. It's it's a rough it's a rough climate. Where do, oh, yeah. how, so how do you I went find your way back like, in? I somehow skipped over how I actually ever worked in comics in the first place. That's true. And, and jumped straight to L.A. because, like, that's that's something we can both talk about. But uh, uh, after college, um, I had hooked up with what uh, the guys who put together Artemis Studios in Hillsborough, North Carolina, which included Mike Waringo, legend, uh, Richard Case, Chuck Voitkevich, uh, later uh, John Lowe in Inker, and... Uh, Later, who later became head of SCAD's uh, comics program. And uh, Scott Hampton joined. Casey Jones was part of it for a while. Uh, is you know, it was this whole collective. And uh, we were just kind of re- the guys in the area and decided to throw in and do a studio. And that's what other people were doing, like the guys down in Georgia did the Guy Jin studio. Uh, Cully and Brian and all those guys, and Adam and everybody. Tony. And uh, Jason. And... Um, and that was great for me because even though I was like kind of the lowest totem pole of the group, you know, everybody else was getting work and I was just maybe doing a, a free anthology here and there. I was able to like keep working up samples and I would stick them in uh, like Mike or Rich's FedEx box going into an editor. So the editor would have to look at my work. <laughs> you know, That's good. It was that was a pretty good way to get under people's nose. And that's how I ended up getting my first regular work, Hank Canals. 
at Image Comics, uh, which was really, really was Malibu at that point. Um, saw a bunch of Fantastic Four samples I sent, and he asked if I would like to come on to the book Solitaire. And so I started working at Malibu Comics, um, which is in Calabasas, California. And um, yeah, that was, and, and of course, like, they only gave me like three weeks to do an issue, like for several months in a row. And uh, so it was a little, I started figuring out things really fast and I didn't sleep and all the sort of things you do doing monthly comics. And the whole time I was trying to get in as a writer mm-hmm. uh, as well, I was trying to like, Hey, I can write. And everybody goes, yeah, sure you can uh, draw this. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't until, uh, you know, really I moved out to California and was doing all that storyboard work that I was able to work on the interman, which was my graphic novel that came out in 2003 and, you know, I just wanted to do one book that was the kind of thing I wanted to work on. And that's really the only consistent advice I can ever give anybody is like, just just do something the way you really want to do it. Because uh, otherwise, people can't, they're just going to, you know, typecast you into whatever the last thing they saw you drawing or writing. And and that, that still happens today, you know, like right now, I'm kind of stuck in, hey, you're the retro guy, you're always doing these 60s or 30s characters. And that's up to me to break everybody out of it and make them realize like, no, it's just, I'm, I, you know, I can do it and I love doing it, but it's not the only thing I can do. Um, but that's a thing that happens to everybody. And I guess, I guess any entertainment, even Darwin uh, cook. Oh yeah. And Darwin even warned me about it. He said yeah. like, they're just going to, they're just going to think you're the retro guy. Uh, they do it to me. You know, he told me, uh, you know, those like a year before he died. Yeah. And he was right. Uh, and I kind of knew it. So, but, you know, you, you're also faced a lot of times with, well, I can either be the, this person everybody expects, or I can be this out-of-work person nobody's thinking of. Mm-hmm. So what's my option there? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're doing – I mean, I, I can't not, complain. Go I've gotten some really cool things to work on. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I mean, and not, and not to skip ahead, but, you know, there is – I think that – you are it's always kind of my favorite to talk to comic book veterans folks who've been through the industry at sort of different stages of it i like you know when you're talking about the the people who you've met and and the you know the different eras that you sort of cross i i find that really interesting because now you're you know you you have you you have to take the work that's come along you have you have a family and it's you know it's not yeah. there's there's not money flying out of every corner of comics anymore so you know, to sort of be a, I, I don't, I don't know if journeyman's the right word, but you know, it's a, a comic book worker. You've got to make comics. You've got to be a working comic book creator in some way. And like, how do you see that now compared to sort of the different eras that you've worked in? Like, how are you looking at how the industry works for somebody in your position? Is it harder than ever? Well, well the, uh, I'm still, uh, just like 10 years ago, I'm still like, my main task is to ultimately convince everybody to uh, read books that I own, mm-hmm. you know, or co-own with another creator uh, or more. Uh, and I still haven't done that. And, you know, I'm happy for my friends who have made it work. You know, it's, it's, it's an impressive feat, I think, because people don't want to read new things. They want to, 
they they often come to comics for a familiar dose of something they always loved and they, they like that it makes them feel a certain uh, yearly read the Harry Potter series mm-hmm. uh, like my kids and uh, and I totally get that um, but at the same time you've got to also convince all right but see if you like this you may like what I do and you might like this other thing I do. <laughs> You know, so uh, it's like it doesn't have to have Batman in it by law. You know, (laughs) we could try something else. So, yeah, I am working on a few new things that I hope to come out with pretty soon. Uh, In the meantime, I'm doing that James Bond origin book, which is a lot of fun. I was just reading about that because I I had seen that it was a thing and I was like, oh, I'm going to read that when it comes out. And that's pretty much all that I do. But I did notice that it was a young James Bond in in World War Two era. And I was like, "Okay, that's got me. That's interesting. It it actually is way more interesting than I even thought it was going to be, because once I got into it, I realized, oh, yeah, if I were just doing a regular Bond thing, then it'd be all about coming up with a clever way or where's he going to say, Jay, I'm Bond, James Bond, there's yeah. eh, vodka martini, la, la, la. here's my gun. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it, this, this forces you to have to think of like what makes him James Bond when he doesn't have all that, those trappings and no one calls him 007 and there's no M and no Q, you know, like what makes him Bond at this point? He's just a young guy and it's in the context is completely different. It's World War II. It's like it's a real war we all know about and, uh, you know, with real consequences. And, and but at the same time, it's kind of a perfect proving ground for a hero uh, who would become that kind of figure. So it's it's been really interesting. And I've had to really learn a lot of stuff that, you know, I like any of us. I my whole take on World War Two is always through the eyes of how the Americans experienced it. Mm-hmm. And now I'm having to read a lot about, like, you know, how it was for the British and how it was in neutral countries, you know, like uh, Portugal, um, and because I'm working all that sort of stuff in. And uh, I, but I, I I love when an assignment, you know, also kind of doubles as uh, a history lesson for me. It's like I feel like wow, I really got something out of it, and and then it's my responsibility to also like. Not not weigh everybody down with whatever I learned. I've still got to make it a fun tale and and something really engaging and thrilling. But at the same time, you know, if you can impart a little, giving them a little sense of what the history was, I feel like you're doing some good. And that's a really fine line between sort of having it there, not explaining too much, but not explaining too little, and keeping it interesting too at the same time. Yeah, you can't put everything in. Yeah, you, you get all Look what I learned. <laughs> I know, and you've seen people do that in movies and all kinds of stuff like they learned a lot about the subject and and they just bore you with it <laughs> you know or just like you just can't use it all you you've got to somehow know it and then uh drop it do you i mean you've you've done you've done a lot of big properties you've had you know sort of things that have you know legacy behind them when you when you approach something like James Bond is your is your instinct oh, I can totally do this or I'm not sure if I can do this or, or somewhere in the middle, like where, how did, like, how did you feel approaching this? Uh, I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't scared of Bond. I was like, okay. uh, one of the first things i my parents took me when they were doing revival drive-in movies and they were showing the, they, this one 70 twin drive-in, uh, 
in, in the area where I lived would show James Bond movies on the weekend. And my dad was a huge Bond freak. And they took me, I saw him in order because he, he took me to like Dr. No. <laughs> and they just assumed I would go to sleep in the back seat. But I didn't. I stayed there, you know, stayed up and watched it. That's uh, a long movie. Yeah. You for for a little me. little sleepy kid, it is. Yeah. And, and of course, to me, I thought the whole point of the movie was it's all about this uh, robot dragon thing that breathes fire on the beach. You know, that's what I thought the whole buildup was to. Yeah, that's only like a few minutes in the movie <laughs> or whatever. It's just something. And for some reason, Quarrel is scared of it like it's a, a legendary thing. Like, what? Why would Quarrel care about this? Like, that that guy's a real badass. <laughs> it's, it's just a weird bit, bit of not great writing right there in the middle of uh, an otherwise fun movie. Uh, yeah, and his invincible friend Quarrel, who can be cut in the face and laughs about it. So you knew Bond. You were not. You were oh, not. yeah, yeah. I knew, I, knew, I knew Bond pretty well. It was like, yeah, I'd, I didn't pay real close attention during the Pierce Brosnan movies because mm -hmm. I just, he was never a very convincing Bond to me. It's like, he's pretty. He holds up a suit well, blah, blah, blah. But if he came running at me, I, oh, I wouldn't turn around. I'd say, I, I'm taking my chances. You know, uh, Daniel Craig comes running at me. I'll just like, all right, I'm, I'm just keep going. I'm, I'm out of your way. Same thing with Sean Connery, you know. He's got those lovely clothes too, so I want to make sure you yeah. don't mess that up. He's perfectly tailored clothes. He's just a badass. Um, Doesn't but sweat I, I when he runs in them. No, not at all. And uh, I love Timothy Dalton, even though his two Bond movies aren't good. He's the, great in them. The, yes, he is. And the I think the first one is it the, which one's first? The Living Daylights is that first? Living Daylights. Yeah. That's pretty good. I I saw that like on accident one time, and I was surprised there's no way this is going to be any good i mean i saw it when i was a little kid but then later it's definitely the better one of the two yeah yeah yeah. i think the other one's terrible yeah but he's good and no it, you're totally right he's he's again good at it uh, good in it uh you know the cast are good um but they can't get around the story and the low production values <laughs> and then pierce brosnan gets to benefit from these high production values and all good directors you know coming in on his movies so. I'm I'm going back to comics. I'm gonna I'm gonna come around because we we skipped. But so you're you're doing you know you you start to do the Malibu stuff, um, and then you're you're working in L.A. You know it, at what point did you? I know you want to do your own stories and things. Did you have your mind on doing sort of mainstream Marvel DC stuff? Is that a thing? No, no, actually not, not really. Yeah, it That's doesn't sound like thing. it. I mean, I liked it a lot uh, growing up, <laughs> and I was always into it, and I knew the. I knew all the characters really well, <clears throat> but it wasn't really what I was thinking of doing. I was thinking like, oh, I'll do uh, my own kind of adventure stuff or whatever, or maybe, I don't know, maybe I'll do fantasy. I, I didn't know I was just going to do whatever occurred to me. Um, but the interesting thing is uh, it, at some point I had been part of a thing where I, I had met Doug Wildey. Uh, through uh, I I often would uh, do assist for artist Bo Hampton, who is Scott Hampton's brother, mm -hmm. and then I did a little bit of assistant work for Scott, and it was usually just filling in blacks or whatever while they did all the fun drawing. But I learned a lot from it. You know, I'd see how they thought about things and how they broke down a script. And uh, and Bo was teaching at the Savannah College of Art and Design for a while, and I went down to visit him when he brought Doug Wildey out to tour the place, and Doug Wildey like told us all about his time in animation and everything and comics. And, 
And Bo was trying to arrange a thing where they would do a grown-up Johnny Quest comic. <laughs> and he, he asked me, he's like, if you want to write it, you know, then I could like uh, make it like an assignment. You know, we could actually get the students to draw it. It would give them like a real published credit and everything. We'll do all this sort of thing. He thought, you know, and get Doug to kind of edit, sign off on it, give his blessing and make sure he didn't think it was sucked. Um, and that, that whole thing never went anywhere except that I wrote a little bit of this grown up uh, Johnny quest thing. And that kind of led into the interman because mm -hmm. a lot of what I was thinking there, you know, I was like, I was also kind of adding to uh, other stuff I had been reading at the time. Like I was reading a lot of, uh, like Trevanian spy stuff, like the Iger sanction. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it's just like, that guy was a really great writer. Um, and I was also reading in, in nonfiction, I was reading Stephen Jay Gould's uh, natural history work where he's just talking about evolution. And so it's so like, the two main things I was reading were just coalescing in my head. And that's where I started doing this. Like, well, what if I had this kind of global uh, hero who just evolves uh, and adapts to any situation he's in or any environment that he's in? And that's how I got kind of got down that track. But the interesting thing was I, I kept kind of coming with these near misses on things about Johnny Quest. <laughs> uh, like after I'd done the Malibu stuff, uh, this editor at Dark Horse had called me. And he said, hey, we've, we're supposed to be doing a new Johnny Quest comic. Do you want to draw it? And I was like, this is great. This is exactly what I want to work on. And I, I drew up these, uh, uh, these little one-page uh, strips uh, based on some scripts they sent me that we're going to run like as a backup just to kind of be an ad for the coming comic. <clears throat> and I, I thought I did a pretty good job. I, I went back and looked at them not that long ago, and I was like, wow, I really kind of rose to the occasion because I wasn't that great an artist at the time. But because of the material, I, <laughs> I, I, I manned up there a little bit. You know, I leveled up some. I shouldn't have said man. Um, and, uh, and then he loved it, and everybody at Dark Horse loved it. And then the people at Hanna-Barbera at the time wrote back and said, no, no, this isn't what we're doing. This looks like classic quest. And they're like, oh, God. no. Yeah, and it's like, yeah, of course it does, because I'm a huge uh, Doug Wilde influence uh, person. I love that stuff. And they, and then they sent me the model sheets of the ca cartoon, which was that thing where Johnny was like always in virtual reality. Oh. <laughs> it, it was so bad, and I was just like, oh man, it was it was just a character destroying moment for me. I was just like, no, like this this thing I grew up loving. And now I've got to do this bastardization of it, and I'm helping do it. And uh, I ended up just— And little did you know, that would be all of the media of the future. Yeah. All of it. <laughs> it would be all of it. And, Every uh, single so, thing. So I had a horrible experience with that, and ultimately what I ended up doing was just used in a General Mills serial giveaway. Oh, God. So it was like one of, one of these horrible comics on bad quality paper that would come— it, Thankfully, not directly in the cereal, but on the outside of the plastic wax <laughs> bag, you know, so you could still read it. Um, I wouldn't even go buy the cereal to see how it turned out, you know, but they still sent them to me. So, so that you're was saying like, you got published. But I, but I did get published again. And, uh, you know, and then I got some other work. I was working off and on at D.C. on different things. A lot of it was a lot of those uh, 
the big book of series, if you know what I'm talking about, where it was like the big book of criminals or the big book of. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm suddenly blanking on anything I worked on. It was a lot of history stuff though. And it was like, whatever it paid. And it, it was, it was a chance to again, do research and, and work on things, um, and do what I love. But, uh, all of that, it was it was after that Johnny Quest thing that I really got into the thing like, oh, I'm going to do this Inner Man thing. Um, and I would just slowly poke at it and throw away stuff and start over and everything uh, until I, I moved out to L.A. and finally had really time to work on it. So it was just kind of weird that I ultimately ended up be, bringing Johnny Quest back in, in comics form, you know, as I would originally like to have done it. But instead, you know, they asked me at DC to do with Evan uh, Shaner uh, to do Future Quest, where we would bring all the characters together, all the adventure characters of the 60s as a as a big crossover. And I think they asked us to do that because Evan and I had done the Flash Gordon King Features thing. Yeah. And, you know, that's at least my what I assume was. And uh but that was cool because I felt like, you know what? Okay, I can do Johnny Quest right. It's, it's weird. It's like you wait long enough and you get the chance to actually get some closure on something. <laughs> and I, did, I don't think I even needed the closure at that point, but I was happy to do it. I was like, you know what? Uh, the, and there was some stuff I could iron out here and I could uh, make Haji uh, less, with less of a caricature approach and, you know, and really get some things I, I would like to have seen in the cartoon so i was very happy with that and i assume those were all things i mean i grew up with them because they were just running them constantly all the time so yeah yeah so so yeah you, me I too mean, it was all the stuff that you runs by the time i saw it too yeah 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 no it would have had to be but it's because i went around in 64 <laughs> yeah no yeah totally not even as a baby but but, uh, but i think when you look later like into all the, the i mean the future quest stuff the, the sort of uh, lesser properties, the ones you wouldn't have seen so much. Those I don't know as well because I think that they hadn't, you know, been airing those at that point. Like I saw lots of Johnny Quest when I was a kid, yeah. but some of the other and, stuff. Yeah, I no one, knew. no one has seen. And it seemed you'd seen the Herculoids probably, but barely. You probably, you probably hadn't seen much of the Impossibles or any of the other stuff or Dino Boy. Yeah, that's a really interesting line that you have to or get to walk with those have to and get to is is that like who. Who are you? Who do you have in mind for who you're sort of servicing for those stories? Um, because they're kids' me. stories, but they're, I mean, that, that kind of seems like the safest bet. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, uh, you're writing I, them like all ages stories. They're not, they're not dumbed down for kids, but they're not, no, not a new dark version either. They're they're sort of, it's kind of appropriate when I, I guess when I read them, I was like, that's about what it should be, which is interesting because it seems like a yeah, fine uh, line. I think completely in the vein of Pixar. I, you know, right. I feel like they, they, they know exactly how to do it. It's like you make it so everyone can enjoy it. It's not rocket science. You can do that. Um, and, but the other principal audience is like for that was it's me and Shaner. I, you know, I want to please <laughs> Shaner and, and myself. And, uh, and, and I feel like we have universal enough interest that once you do that, uh, other people will also enjoy it. Um, trying to think like you know sometimes i would put little nods in there for people that you would never know they were for someone else but so again I, I i wouldn't use anything that didn't work on a on a big audience mm -hmm. 
I don't think. Um, it's like, you know, I was thinking like, hey, I did think in terms of even though he wasn't around to enjoy it, it's like my dad really liked Space Ghost when I was a baby because okay. <laughs> it would be on and he would he would tell me about this cartoon later. Like, yeah, you were there and you were in your crib and I was watching Space Ghost. And I was like, what is Space Ghost? It just sounded great, whatever it was. Yeah. And uh, and then, of course, later they started showing it again and I got to watch it and I was like, oh, no wonder. It's like and then. You know, you go back and realize, okay, those weren't the deepest cartoons in the world. Johnny Quest had a real plot to it, but everything else was very simple. They were 10-minute shows. It was just a monster shows up. You get the right combination of hitting your bands and shooting energy at it, and 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 that's the uh, depth of it all. So it gave me a lot of room to kind of, like, all right, what if I uh, expanded these concepts and you know, explain why Space Ghost is this character and why why do these two kids have uniforms but they're different from his? And I just kind of reverse engineer the whole thing from there. And that's kind of a fun exercise. It, it gets without going to like you said, uh, doing like here's the dark version of this. Um it still kind of explores darker stuff, but you don't shove everybody's face in it, you know. It's just that it gives it gravitas still. Yeah. Uh, it sucks. It sucks, though, that people still like at the, after this time, like long after Alan Moore to circle back around like the shark long after Alan Moore is abandoned doing this. You know, people still will like, hey, let's do a really heavy downer version of these comics characters. And it still works on people. You know, everybody still thinks it's brilliant. And I'm like, eh. I, I mean, I, it's a formula. I, I am not in a. I'm not. In, I'm not in a place to get you in trouble. But my thing would be that if you look at, um, you know what, uh, you know Mark Russell did with the Flintstones. Oh, um, I love that. I mean, it God. was. The, it was the literally the best comic book, and that's yeah. without qualification. That was. That was my favorite yeah. book of the year. Best best twelve issues being made during that time period and then at the same time there there's another book uh about another hanna-barbera character um that is still around um the the apocalypse scooby-doo book and that's still Mm -hmm. being published like that's still in print and not to say you know that's necessarily good or bad or whatever but you know those two takes to me that one still has an audience and the other doesn't is just it just i it's not that i don't expect it but i just find it so disheartening i suppose uh, man what what uh what mark and uh steve Pooh were doing in in that to me it's just like this is i was like this is what i want from a comic book yeah. i was just like i love the way it made me feel <laughs> you know i, I love the way they would effortlessly get into something that mattered uh and and just kind of and and of course the humor is terrific you know he's just like riffing on fairly heavy stuff, but getting a lot of humor out of it and bringing in Carl Sagan and all this stuff. It's like, Oh, I, I just thought it was terrific. And, and, and the really horrible thing about it is that he didn't know how to write comic books and he didn't know what he was doing. Yeah. He, he did sucks. it anyway. That's I know, just, crazy to me. He just bumbles in. Looks like I'm good at this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I try to promote his stuff as much as I can because I like I feel like, you know, he he needs to be a pretty big deal because he is good. Yeah, it was, it was, and it was I, want, I, I want more of this for just for myself, for me reading. Yep. Uh, anyway, 
that. So, so uh, you know, where where are you at now? I know you've got you've got sort of your handful of old things that your your retro yeah, vibe things that you've yeah, got. Yeah, I've got to revive some old properties. I've got yeah. to, I've like, got to bring you, some things back to life. How are you going to work your way out of that in today's climate? Because it's it's a rough. It seems like it's a rough place to sort of make your way as a writer in comic books, and and you've been well established for a while, but uh, you know, there's it's a tough market, and and I feel like there's like a handful of guys who are writing comics and really making a you know good living out of it, and then there's a lot of other people, um, yeah. you know, where you're, you're taking what you can get to a certain extent uh, until you happen to get hot again for a little while. Yeah, that's the way it goes. I'm lucky in that I haven't had to take anything I actively don't like. Right. Um, you know, so knock on wood. I'm very happy about that. You know, like it's like the James Bond thing. Oh, this is great. Yeah. Um, you know, people keep asking me to do something. Like, well, that's the nice thing. Once you get your kind of voice out there mm-hmm. and, and people know what you're capable of, they will tend to like bring stuff to you that, you know, that, they don't usually get it so wrong that they say, Hey, why don't you do uh I'm trying to think of something? It's, and now I'm in the weird position. Like what's something I would hate and I don't want to slam anybody's book uh-huh. or anything, but it's just not for me. I'm trying to think of something like that, you know, where they say, do this. And I'm like, eh, I just don't care about that. Um, I can't, now I can't think of anything. My mind goes blank, but luckily people only have been bringing me stuff that, and, and asking me for pitches on things that I'm already prone to like. Uh, but yeah, I've still got to do that. It was just like a few years ago. I was, uh, when I was doing the stuff at Marvel mm-hmm. and, you know, I was working on things like agents of Atlas and stuff like that, which I really enjoyed yeah. and the Marvel adventures books. And a lot of people thought then it's like, Oh, well you do these kid books. And it's like one, you're not clearly not reading the Marvel adventures books. <laughs> if you think we're just doing kid books, cause it's like we're 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 just zinging everything in there, um, but then like uh, Bill Roseman had asked me to do a Hood miniseries, and I think they were like, "Hey, we want to keep building up this character, the Hood, and everything." So I I read, uh, you know, Brian Vaughn's uh, series uh, before, and then I came up with some stuff. But then because I, I did this whole thing focusing on a villain, then they asked me to do Thunderbolts, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and that was great, you know. And I got to work with Kev Walker and Declan Shalvey. That was and I mean, uh, that was a super fun run. And both of those, I mean, both of those artists. I mean, I feel did that launch Declan? And I guess I kind of did in a way. Yeah, I'd never even heard yeah. of oh, Kev yeah. Walker before, but now I buy everything I see with his name on it. He's so good. Yeah, it's, uh, it's insane. As is Deck. Yes. And uh, yeah, and then and at the time, Declan was doing. Uh, well, it was one of that zombie book that's not Walking yes. Dead. He was like 28 uh, Days Later. Yeah, thank IDW. you. It was 28 Days Later. Yeah. And it's like, I don't know who reads that, but somebody must. And But anyway, it was like, it was like, oh, well, you know, he's sort of kind of getting in the American market and everything. And then he and I met at uh, the Hero Show uh, in Charlotte. And uh, we we're talking, and I just thought his stuff was great. Now, well, let me push, you know, and I just kept badgering my editor with things about him. And then he, it was the way this always goes. Whenever I'm badgering an editor about uh, a talent, you know, and they always like, eh, 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 which of course they have to, they can't just sit there and like, yeah, you be the editor. You decide this sort of thing, you know, and they kind of go, okay, I'll give them a chance. And, you know, and then like do a fill in. And then suddenly they're, well, we need him to do a whole lot more stuff. And then 
And then later they don't remember that you ever was the were the one who brought them to them at all. It happens every single time. But I don't care. I just want the people I, I want uh, who I know are good to be working. Well, it's a, it's a um, thing that I've noticed about your career, certainly in, in sort of the, the you know Marvel DC stuff. Like you – I don't know how much you push for having specific artists, but you're a guy who works with good artists, and they're not necessarily – Name yeah, I like guys, uh, well, I mean, obviously, but like it's not necessarily get name guys. But I, Remender's another guy who always does. It's like he always seems to be yeah, working sure. with he a guy. He has a bunch of great, great artists, right? Who and with. who fit with him really well. And you know, when I think back, if I if I go through the roster of of guys who you've worked with, there's some of my favorite. You know, Fowler. You know, I'm like Fowler's yeah. a genius. Like Fowler's more than tops. Yeah, you know, you know, Gabe, uh, Gabe on the Hulk stuff. Uh, you know, and it keeps going in that way. You know, are, are, like, is that a thing that you push for to make sure that because, you know, you're not always in charge of making that decision. You, you know, you're not. Oh, yeah. Getting placed with a guy who does photo tracing. No, no. And I remember one time uh, uh, someone, uh, an editor called me for a project. And now I'll be diplomatic, not name any titles or names. But, you know, it was telling me about it and ask if I would pitch and everything. I went, OK, you know, and I actually needed the work at the time, mm-hmm. too. It wasn't something I could just like blow off. And then I asked, like, do you already have an artist for this? And uh, it went, yeah, it's so-and-so. And it was an artist I knew, like, I had no affinity with. And I was just like, uh, just call somebody else. Like, I don't think he and I should work together. And that was just the most worthwhile thing, to have an editor just do the, you know, because uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're so used to being everybody just, as we were talking about in, in L.A., everybody's kind of, being extremely sweet and groveling. And I was just like, no, cause I knew it would do me no good to work with somebody that I don't click with at all. And it wouldn't do that artist any good. It, we, we would just both be unhappy. And, uh, so yeah, like I always try to make sure and, and, and I try to advocate for really good artists. Uh, yeah, Evan, it's another one, obviously, but you know, and, and I, oh God, I, yeah. I, I think sometimes that I don't know why he's not a superstar at this point. That's my, my, I'm like, why is what? Just give him Superman. Just, I mean, I know he's working with you on stuff, but um, yeah, well, yeah, he will be. Yeah. Um, but it is one of those things. Like, I worry that not enough of the market can sort of appreciate the difference. You know, of, mm-hmm. of like, oh, this is an art and and creative story team that is that is working really well together. But it seems so obvious to me, and and you're aware of that, um, which I think is a, is a is you know the best trait to have for a comic book writer certainly <laughs> sort of say yeah. like this artist you know this is going to work this isn't um yeah i don't i don't care how popular the artist is yeah. i just care how good they are <laughs> you know it's like it's like it doesn't bother and i i have heard guys you know they're like and mostly secondhand but i've heard people refer to black blah blah a-listers and stuff like that and i have never thought in terms of that mm-hmm. you know like who who actually makes sales or anything i only think of like who's good who's appropriate for the job. You know? how, how much of that goes back to you having, you know, drawn comics or are you just being a student of, you know, Al Williamson and, and all the, you know, that stuff we were talking, those guys we were talking about that sort of, it, pro- it probably generation. is. Yeah. It's probably completely, uh, from me being an artist, working artist before, mm-hmm. you know, I'm just like, no, no, I want to find somebody good. Like, you know, Fowler and I wanted to work together for a long time. And then uh, I was invited to create Mysterious, you know, at Wildstorm. That was like one of the last Wildstorm books. 
And uh, it was so perfect, too, because I had been pushing yeah. for him uh, on on that. And, you know, I had been pushing for him for a, another thing. And I, now I can't remember what it was, but it was a Marvel thing that I was doing. And uh, And the editor, I think, had already talked to him. But then they ultimately, whatever, you know, the editor always has to answer to someone up higher and they had to, and whoever up higher, you know, wanted someone else. And, uh, it was the, just such a, I, I love imagining what a day it was for Tom. Cause he got a phone call, uh, from the editor saying like, I'm sorry, we we're going with somebody else on this. Now I can't remember what the damn book was. Um, and Tom just going, you know, having to just like, all right, you know, be just like, take it. And he said it, it wasn't even a whole minute before the email then came in from Ben Abernathy asking <laughs> if he'd be interested in working with me on a thing at Wildstorm. <laughs> so it's like, he was just like, he got 30 seconds of being down about this <laughs> before he then got a better invitation where we got to create something new. It's perfect uh, for him too. And that and that's something else. Tom and I have finally been, you know, we've gotten the rights back to that nice. now and we're talking about doing more mysterious. That's so great. that's that's something I uh hope to write up pretty soon. I'm he, he did a really good uh picture of Delphi the other day that he had online and I was like, Oh god, this is so perfect and it got me fired up. It's like as soon as I'm caught up on my deadlines, I'm gonna start working on like a a thing that kind of maybe a short that we just put online just to reintroduce everybody to the whole concept. So it's Again, interesting to me. Yeah, oh, it's amazing. Yeah, no, he, he's, he's, he's insane. Like it, it's some of the, that's the book that introduced me to his work. And it's another one of those things where like, I'll, I buy everything Tom does and, and you know, every sketch, every, everything he's ever put up, it's, it's, it's a genius. Like it's, it's just, mm -hmm coming off the page so one thing that's really interesting in talking to you is and and you know you would know this just from from you know seeing your post online or whatever and, and is that you still seem to have a great deal of enthusiasm for this stuff and and it's interesting to talk to you in you know you've you've got kids you've got to you know pay bills and you're making comics but there's still there's even still there's an element of enthusiasm about it where you know like you 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 really love this art form still which i i find incredibly refreshing because <laughs> <laughs> as you know uh people can get cynical it's the you know collaborating with really good people mm -hmm. it's just there's a certain magic to it and it's not like nothing else yeah and it never I don't know how anybody could think it gets old because it doesn't get old to me. Uh, you know, whenever I'm working with somebody and we click like on the bond stuff, uh, working with a guy I'd never worked with before, uh, Bob Quinn and, uh, and Bob was a guy, he had worked in games and he'd been doing this stuff and he just recently like wanted to get out of that and start doing comics. And, uh, you know, and, and Nate Cosby, who was the one who put me together with Evan mm -hmm. <clears throat> on flash Gordon. Um, I mean, I knew Evan before anyway. Yeah. You know, but and, and but he was the one who actively sought us both out to work on it. I just want to make uh, it clear to people listening. He means Evan Doc Shaner. That's just... Evan Doc Shaner, the the pre preeminent Captain Marvel artist, even though he's only drawn like two things with me <laughs> uh, that had Captain Marvel in him and uh, and the Future Quest artist. And Flash Gordon, which I'm extremely proud of our run on Flash Gordon. I felt like we actually did everything we set out to do. 
Um, but yeah, when you, it's one, the, one of the thing I was very aware of, uh, from being an artist and getting scripts is you've always got to convince the artist that you're doing something that's worth their time. Uh, you know, they're used to people, uh, just sitting there, here's my script, blah, blah, make it work. Uh, I'll complain if I don't like some of it and everything. But I, to me, it's more fun to try to get in that artist's head and try to figure out what's going to really make it work for them. Because once you convince them of the story, you've just suddenly, it's like you just added a turbo to an engine or something, you know, it's, it's, yeah. or you just nitrous it. Because suddenly they step up and they do something that they weren't doing before. And whenever that happens, I just, I'm just delighted. It, you know, I never get tired of it. Uh, I love seeing an artist just get fired up about what they're working on. Uh, and that's what I'm always trying to do. I'm always like, so I never, I, I, I've often had that fear too. It's like, oh man, I hope I don't start just phoning it in. But I never do because because I'm working with another real person and I don't want them to phone it in. I, I want them to be excited about it. Uh, so I have to always put the real thought in. And I think that's the thing. It's You got to do that. That's what keeps you from you, you could bumble down the road of becoming a hack and you don't want to do that. You know? No. And, and I mean, one of the things I noticed is that you you've all you know, you talked earlier about working with uh, a, a studio of folks, you know, who are sort of collective working together. You're in um, Helioscope now. And so yeah. I assume that that means you go to a place where there are other people making comics and being creative regularly instead of sort of sit, you know, the, the other idea of sitting by yourself, always torturously <coughs> making comics. And that I feel like That's that different. has a lot to do with it. It does have a lot to do with it. Um, like you may feel down about something, but then when you go in and see somebody else fired up, it, it, it snaps you out of it. You realize, oh, yeah, I, I should be having fun doing this. I should be excited about this. And then people ask you what you're working on and you can show them, uh, you know, and go in there and see Lucas Kettner drawing something amazing, doing one of his horror books. And he's, the guy's just such a badass. You know, Steve Lieber will be doing something just like uh, coming up with a new, bringing back like some forgotten kind of technique, you know, or, or just doing anything interesting. Everybody's doing. Does Colin he know, does he, does Steve Lieber know how good he is? Because not enough people so. do. He's so good. He is so good. I I got like I just I got like a sketch from him years and years ago, like a uh, a, a whiteout sketch, and I still remember it. Like the sketch, I still have it. It's just it's this beautiful thing he did it in moments, and so now, you know, every time I see his work, I'm like, again, he's just one of those people that people who know know. Like he's amazing, yeah. and he should. Oh yeah, know, he should know all the time that he's amazing. He must know, but, uh, you know, it's like, but I, I don't think his persona, <laughs> yeah. you know, his, his outward personality will let him acknowledge it. Mm -hmm. Uh, like other people were like, I, you can talk to Colleen Coover and she'll admit she's great. <laughs> um, and she's not being, you know, she's, she's not being a jerk about it at all. She mm -hmm. just, she's just very pragmatic that way. And she's not going to sit there and go waste your time uh, giving false modesty. She, uh, she knows she's really good. Um, she's our, she's our own biggest fan, but no, she's, she's a world-class cartoonist. And like, it's, it, it does irritate you when people won't acknowledge that. It's like, yeah. you, come on, you know, you're, you're the deal. Um, 
It's a little harder for Steve, but I, I, I do think he knows how good he is. Good. Uh, I'll make him listen to the podcast, and we'll be like, here, jump to uh, <laughs> jump to 27 minutes in or something like that. That's what we're, we're way, talking about. We're way past that, son. Oh, are we? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good sign for me uh, as far as you're concerned, but oh, yeah. <laughs> we're heading around the bend oh. now. Oh, man, these are great. This is a good show. <laughs> I'm really good at this. <laughs> you are really good. <laughs> That's the, uh, yeah, you're not, you're not hemming and hawing. You probably edit things, too. Heck. I not mean, all these things. Yeah. Well, you don't have to at this point. You know how to keep it tight running without doing it all. That's what I tell myself every time. I mean, you, you learned this working on Loveline. <laughs> I don't think I did. Yeah. I don't think I Adam learned a going lot. Going into the lightning round, you're producing the Yeah, you know, it's like uh... No, 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 no. I got lunches. I delivered things <laughs> at night. The best part of that job was that at some point I took over the job of listening to the calls that had come in overnight and like making notes. Oh, that must have been freaky. Yeah. I, I remember no details about it or anything. I just know that it was this it's like a, a horrible voyeuristic thrill to be like, well, I'm going to listen to this because Yeah. They would, they were anonymous. They would say anything on the phone and it was a fascinating way to start your day. That is a fascinating way to start your day. Yeah. Yeah. I really liked that oh, part. I can people just stoned out of their head mm -hmm. talking about their private parts. Yeah. That and I got tacos for Smash Mouth once. So, you know, either way, tacos what? and whiskey. Actually. How is that? How is that? How is that not like the first thing under your name when I'm looking up <laughs> your stuff? You know, it's like got tacos for smash mouth <laughs> because it's one of many many almost interesting things that i've done you know next year is the 20th anniversary of all-star i did not know yes it is <laughs> i don't know i don't know how we're gonna celebrate i, I i'm sure they're gonna be get something. our game on we're gonna play yeah. <laughs> no way yeah there's there's no way that this isn't gonna be a big thing Oh, that's horrible. I was I remember being very uh like like a little snobby about it at the time, just internally. And outwardly I was like, sure thing. And I got them tacos and whiskey. But um Oh, they had to have whiskey with it, huh? Yeah, tacos yeah. and whiskey. You know, uh, like anybody else, I'll make fun of All Star, but I really liked Walking on the Sun. I, I like that I genuinely like that song mm. when it came out. I hadn't listened to it in a long I time. I can't get behind that. It's catchy. Yeah, yeah. I understand what's valuable about it now. And I th yeah, I can almost say that I enjoyed their Monkeys cover from the Shrek movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah, see? Okay. Wait, were they in all the Shrek movies? Did they just always do a new remake for a Shrek movie? I'm, I'm guessing that got them through the 2000s. See, I can kind of identify with Smash Mouth because uh, I feel I like, <laughs> you know, they would... Uh, like, you know, they did their retro thing uh, with the, uh, Walking on the Sun, and everybody loved it. And then they tried to do just some other songs that they wanted to do, and people would not accept it. So they had to go back to doing this retro thing. <laughs> so I can totally get where they're coming from. They're like, all right, we'll do this. It's it's better than, yeah, uh, we're still in mystery, man. You can't take that away from us. <laughs> I wonder what it's like to be in Sm in Smash Mouth now. Like are there are there are there are there lots of albums? Like are there like two albums? Are there like eleven albums? Where I they're don't know. Just going after it still. Are are they just like always 
hanging around Guy Fieri and stuff. I don't know what they do. Hmm. I mean, I could find out, but it's better to wonder. Well, you know, as much as that one song plays, it doesn't matter because they still Not, make money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do they still like? Uh, does yeah. it still work that way? Well, I don't know. That's now one of the that last Spotify, hits. Yeah. Now that Spotify, uh, yeah, because of the time period, they probably still make money. Yes. Everybody else who comes along after that in the two thousands, no matter how big their hit was, you, you always find out later they don't have any money. Right. Yeah. Like Which other sucks. than like like Justin Timberlake and Beyonce. Yeah, they have. They literally is... have to be filling arenas, or they don't make any money. It's right. crazy. I feel like this is our fault in some way, but I don't want to follow that train of thought. <laughs> you and me specifically, or yeah, is it a generational it's thing. Something, some choices we made right after the nineties were over. <laughs> I guess I went to that used CD store. Instead of <laughs> instead of the Tower Records, but the Tower they were like nineteen fifty a CD, and I was on a PA salary, so I had to go to the CD trader in Encino, where everything was six ninety nine. This is before Amoeba. Oh, you were probably ripping it off of uh, what was the music sharing thing that first came along? No, Napster. Napster. Yeah. No, I didn't. I had a policy. I'm 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 probably like a little too old to have been part of that. That started right after I left college. And by the time I left, I was, you know, and also I worked in media, so I got to be a little morally uh, uptight about it, where the only thing I used it for, um, I would download things that I couldn't get otherwise. Um, So like live stuff or like, you know, like like B-side-y things you could only get at import CDs or something like that. And then if I liked something, I would buy the CD. But then I would buy it used, so that didn't help. Yeah, you and Flanagan just heading down to the CD Superstore and just picking up what was uh, what was there. Anyway, I'm sorry, Smash Mouth, that, that you guys had to get jobs then, because it's our fault. Yeah, sorry, sorry, Smash Mouth. Smash Mouth's fine. I don't know why we're talking about that. No one knows the name of anyone in Smash Mouth. You refer to them as <laughs> that, a singular. It's just that, that's that guy's name. His name yeah. is Smash Mouth. Smash Mouth guy. I yeah. don't even know. I can't quite picture him. I kind of can, but I hear like a, ah, and that's what I, I think of. Yeah. He, he kind of looks like Guy Fieri. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think, I think we might have hit the end of our road here. Oh, man. I don't know that we actually reached any conclusions here. I don't know that that's a bad thing. I, I think there was an amorphous quality to this that I appreciated. Yeah, well, anyway, we killed somebody's morning drive. Oh, I we, think we so. Got that, we got them there. And and I I think there's enough small... Yeah. There's about, there's about eight guys who are like, I really do like Jaws, and that really hit me right where I needed it to. And everybody yeah. else will kind of enjoy it, but for, for those few peoples, it was a moment. That's what I can't. I almost can't wait till we do the next one and we immediately pick up on Jaws again. And it's just like always going to be a thing. And somebody's going to go, there they go again. It's just they always have to get on Jaws. I, I love I love the idea that when that happens, there will be the majority of people will not remark it one way or the other. A small amount of people will be really into it. And then an equally small <laughs> yeah. amount of people will be really mad about it. Yeah. <laughs> and I That's love what... that. It's the same The same thing as getting fed in. Some people think it's entirely inappropriate. Why is this happening? I'm never listening to this again. I hate this guy. And then when people ask him, what podcast do you like forever? And someone goes, oh, I like, I like that. I fanboy show. Like, oh, God. 
the stupidest show ever. But then for the That's, exact same reason, another person will be their favorite thing. It's the same it's the same thing that makes a book uh, that sticks around and matters to people. You yeah. can't have something that everybody liked. Someone has to hate it. I mean, like really hate it. Yeah. Or you weren't doing it right. I don't know. I don't know why that is, but it's all, you know, it, you always have to have that those people who are like, they will, they will take a bullet for the thing. And the people that are just like get furious when they hear it spoken. <laughs> and that's the, that's our, that's our Jaws, anti-Jaws fans. Do you know what I, I like about that is that it, it makes me feel good about liking something, but then I can also feel good about really hating something. Cause you're still helping. Right. And it's not even, it's, it's not even destructive. Yeah. Wow, that's like you're nothing without haters. Yeah, it's the fuel. It's the uh, something. You need that 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 magnetic push both ways. I I, I, I kind of really became I became really aware of that uh, once when I was writing X Men First Class. I don't know if you read any of those, yeah, but yeah. Um, who drew there that? There was one. Remind me. Uh, Roger Cruz. Okay. And. Uh, but there was one, and I think it was Nick Dragata drew it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's where I had the characters, the Continuitines. And <laughs> they were these three comic shop people who got uh, alternate universe comics that told them what was going to happen. So they were extremely aware of the Marvel Universe and all the heroes and villains in it. And everything and talked about it, talked about their reality, just like anybody in a comic shop would talk about things and they get involved in it. So it's obviously me doing a real meta thing. And I'm really like making fun of X-Men fans. It's very uh, you. It was very me. Yes. And uh, but I was also you could tell at that point now going back, looking at it, I can say, OK, clearly it was getting to me because I would I would sometimes go on and read X-Men fans like take on the thing and they would just they would be furious about certain things that they, I didn't acknowledge or whatever. And, and it was a weird kind of book to do because I had to stick to continuity, but they would never admit it was in continuity. <clears throat> um, so in that book, I kind of did all these things specifically to poke them. Like someone referred to Cyclops as like his laser eyes instead of its force beam or something, the kind of thing mm-hmm. that they would really get wound up about. Um, and I just did all these kind of sort of in jokes. And that one got the, one of the biggest reactions. Like it had people passing it, passing around panels online. They were just like, just thought it was the most hilarious thing. And then there were people who just were writing Marvel saying, this is the worst thing you've ever printed. It's like fire him, blah, blah, blah. And that's when I kind of realized like, uh, Oh, okay. When you're really doing something, (laughs) you're, you're, you're not walking the line. You're you're not walking the line and pleasing everybody. You are actively pissing some people off and making some people delighted, and then you've really kind of harnessed something. What I really like is that if you look back, um, I have the I have some of those uh, old Marvel omnibuses, omnibuy, omnibu, yeah. um, and I have the Amazing yeah. Spider-Man one. You know that does like I don't know it's the first fifty or hundred. It's a gigantic book. Uh, oh, with yeah. all the Lee and Ditko, um, Spider-Man. And the, the issues are printed in their entirety. So the letters are in there. And yeah. the letters more or less read exactly like angry, you know, online Twitter reviews. 
Yeah, they really did. People, except except they posted their address. Their yeah. physical address was also yeah, pretty that crazy. It. It's insane. They would just put the whole address. And then you're reading through there, and it's like, this. who's this kid so furious? Mark Wade, uh, blah, blah, blah. You know, <laughs> Kurt Busiek. And you're, you're, you're seeing people who are later going to be writing all these comics, and they're... They're pissed. Yeah, they're in, yeah, they're they're and but it sounds exactly like it's the exact same thing. Like there's nothing has changed. And and I well, I, I, think, I take I, great comfort in that. I think that's a big thing that motivates people a lot of times. You do want to do something because you love it, but sometimes you just think, damn it, I can do this better <laughs> than someone else. <laughs> you know, you're 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 mad at someone else getting work and you're like, I'm gonna show them how to do it. And spite is a real motivator. People use it all the time. Are you motivated by spite? I don't feel like you are, but it would be a it would be a bombshell. Uh, sometimes I am. All right. So I, I I've got to admit, it's, it's it can't be the only thing that just wouldn't work. But sometimes I'll I'll just look at a comic people are talking about. Uh, I'll be in a shop and you know I'm like oh everybody's buzzing about this and I'll look through there and I'm like what well that was a waste of the artist time and I just start getting furious. But then I like it every time it recenters me like oh yeah. I need to make sure I'm doing this. <laughs> you know, I, I need to make sure I'm not wasting the artist's time and I need to make sure, you know, that I'm not just doing something I've seen a million times. Uh, so it does, it does figure in. It's, it's not the primary motivator, but it's in there somewhere. It's a, a touch of productive spite. Yeah. It's about, it's about yeah, the think, amount of spite. I think there's nothing wrong with that. And just like in music and everything else, yeah, the people are in, people do think of it as a bit of a competition. Sure. You know? But but often you're up against people no one's even considering, like, yeah, I'm going up against this comic that was out 40 years ago and you don't remember it. But but that's my competition. <laughs> Whatever works. Yeah. All right, I think I'm going to wrap this we up. We crushed it. Yeah, I, I mean, obviously. Obviously. Yeah. You can, if you, and, and also if, if people listening want to write in and give us their thought way or one way or another, that's fine. But I need to be able to publish your physical address for any yeah. criticism that comes along with it. That's gonna be my yes. new. That's my new uh, requirement. You can say whatever you'd like, but I'm putting as your long physical as your address. address comes with it. Yeah, and someone can write to you, and you become pen pals. I like that idea. That's awful sweet. Maybe that can happen at some point. That's where all this came from. That's where Twitter, comics forums, everything originates. Is from those addresses being in the back of comic books. Mm -hmm. It's just now it doesn't take any work. Yeah. Well, you remember like in magazines, like Rolling Stone, they would just put like the city. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't give you the street. <laughs> Not so in Marvel. <laughs> yeah. Now, now that you bring it up, I, I never really gave it a whole lot of thought. And now I'm thinking those editors were just trying to screw those letter writers over, weren't they? Yeah, it's not like they were more naive than people are now. They they knew. They knew what they were doing. Yeah. It wasn't like a simpler time where look, there can be nothing could happen to these. They knew. There's no way. <laughs> there... Oh, wait, way to go, Stan. Yeah. Stan's exactly. like, I'm gonna make sure you get hate mail to your house and your parents have to see it. I wanna be in a room in the late sixties with Stan Lee when he really is just being raw. <laughs> that would be great. I mean That's I've been I've been in a room with Stan in his late eighties where he got pretty close to being raw. I've sure. seen Stan Lee turn off, and it was amazing. Mm -hmm. Like, the people left the room, and the batteries just went out. He's like, Brr. and he slumped. 
And it was not. It was uh, before now where if you saw it, it was just before it would be really sad given everything else that we've read about. But I saw him turn right. off the character, and, and I've never forgotten the image of it in my entire life. It was it was a transformative moment. Yeah, it is a it's a, it's almost like a a light operated yeah. thing. It goes into true believer, you know. Uh, yeah, I saw that. Uh, I was visiting when I going back to our LA days. Uh, I was visiting Dave Johnson, and he was briefly working at Stanley Media, mm-hmm. and uh, Stan was in there and uh, meeting with the whole boardroom. And man, it's it's such a weird scene to me now. And it's he was kind of like what you were describing. Uh, he was like thoroughly tired of being in stand mode, <laughs> just being some dude. But then everybody else in the room could barely get their work done because they were all checking their stock. <laughs> you know, because remember, Stanley Media paid paid them in in uh, in in stocks, which ultimately was worth nothing Zero. or whatever. So that that whole thing's burned into my head from that. Like everybody's like, "Wow, it just doubled!" You know, they're all excited. And then if you know what you're going to just in next year, none of this is going to be here. So I really, I'm going to, I'm going to tell one more and then I really no. am going to stop this show, yeah, get, which get off can't my stop. Downer that I just, ended on, yeah. Uh, 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 I, I, for that show that we were talking about, uh, we did a show on, um, the guy who climbed up the world trade center. Um, yeah. I think not the guy who did the tight wire, uh, tight rope walk. Uh, who 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 they made the documentary about? There was another guy. Human snake. No, he was like he called himself the Spider Man, and he like like used okay. suction cups and he climbed up the side of the building. Um, so we did a show on that guy on Fame for Fifteen, and as I would often do on that show as the associate producer, I would find a way to put people on the show who I wanted to meet. So I was like, we should interview Stan Lee for it, and they said that was great. So I set it up, and I you know I got in touch with him. That's we did a the good use of your uh, yeah. job. I met Weird Al like that. I've I met. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, he he was great that day. Anyway, um, but so we we went to Stanley's office and it wasn't it wasn't you know super invasive. Uh, we were there for like twenty or thirty minutes. We set up the light. We talked to him. He he did his thing. And this was just before you know he was known to everybody like he is now. Um, right. But he did his thing, and it was it was you know it was great. You're in the room with him, and then um you know it was over and and i asked for a picture with him which i never did i think i did it i did it twice i did it for weird alan stan lee i was like um can i do this it's unprofessional <laughs> as a as a producer but i was like i don't know when i'm gonna do this again turns out i would do it several other times um but uh after it was over like a week later i got in the mail just one of those um i forget what they're called but all the producers had them buck slips um that was just sort of like their – it would be like letterhead, but they weren't even full letters because nobody wrote that much. It was just like a, a little rectangular cardboard piece of paper um, that they would just write a note on. Um, and it was just a little handwritten note from Stan Lee that said thank you. You know, it was his handwriting, and he signed it and everything. And he just mailed it out as a thank you to me, this little you know, associate producer on a dinky uh, reality interview show. Uh, oh, and I cool. still have that. I just thought – I was like that was the classiest thing that I have ever experienced in my life. Because I it feel like he must have done dozens of those. Yeah, uh, yeah, and and I, I always appreciated that. So that that actually oh, that worked my out really well. Yeah. So basically, if you want to make it in comics, be cool. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. There you go. All right. Thanks yeah, so much, sure. man. Yeah, that was fun. Thanks for having me on. You're welcome. And that is truly the end of that conversation, for real this time. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> actually, it wasn't. We talked for a while after. We talked for a little before. 
but but that's how it goes. Um, thanks so much, Jeff, for coming on the show. Uh, looking forward to checking out that James Bond book from Dynamite. Also, get over to jeffparkerwrites.com to uh, check out what he's got upcoming and follow at Jeff Parker on Twitter. Uh, I hope you dug that. I dug that. That was a good time. Get over to ifanboy.com. You can comment on this show. You can look at the other interviews that we've done, our regular podcast. There are, this is the 80th Talksplode. Um, and there are a lot of short form interviews and things like that. So make sure you check that out. And again, I want to thank the uh, iFanboy patrons uh, for making these shows possible and having them come back. Um, it's, it's been really fun for me to sort of get into these interviews again and have these conversations again. And I get the feeling that, that you folks like it too. So thank you very much, and we will see you later. Bye.